Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Randy Grigsby. He is the author of several books on subjects pertaining to Jewish history during the Holocaust and 1948 Israeli War of Independence. He is the author of the book we will be discussing today, this Labyrinth of Darkness and Light, Henrietta Zold, The Rescue of Children from Hitler's Europe, and Her Palestine Experience, published in London by Valentine Mitchell, 2022. Randy, thank you for being in dialogue with me today. I couldn't be luckier. Thank you for having me, Oris. It's a, it's a subject that I'm very close to my heart. I would love to talk about Henrietta Zoll. To begin, can you tell us about yourself? Where did your inspiration come from for this book? Can you share anything about yourself biographically that ties this book into your personal life story? Well, I was raised on a farm in North Louisiana, uh, worked on the farm, worked in the oil field, like a lot of my relatives did. My granddaddy, my daddy all worked in the oil field. But I decided to go to college because I wanted to be, I wanted to teach history at the university level. So I went to Louisiana Tech and uh, majored in journalism and history. And I had a love for Southern literature, you know, being a Southerner, I read a lot of Southern literature and everything. So that was my plans after college. I came to Shreveport, Louisiana, took a job to pay off my student loan. And uh, as life does, sometimes it turns us in a different direction, in a different path. I met my wife and uh, we were married, have a daughter and two three stepchildren, I mean, three grandchildren. And so I've never left Shreveport. But the thing that really changed my life, or it was after my retirement, I spent 40 years in uh, sales and sales management. Um, when I retired, I bought my wife a ticket to Israel. She'd always talked about it going to Israel. And now I knew a little bit about Israel, not a lot. My mother taught Sunday school in our Methodist church. And she told us every Sunday to bless Israel, always bless Israel. 
So I had that seed planted in me about Israel. But as far as my historical studies, I was focused more on the Second World War, knew about the Holocaust, read about the Holocaust, but not really any further. So we ended up going to Israel with her, even though hadn't planned to, but the pastor of our church told me, he said, if you go, I think God has a gift for you. And of course, that's a comment that you receive from your pastor that you tend to follow up on. This was in 2014, three years after I'd retired. So we went um, and we were landing. I remember we, we were landing in Ben Gurion at about dawn going in to Israel. And my wife just began to cry. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I, I feel like we're going home. And uh, that really changed my mindset going into Israel. On the trip over, I just begun to read uh, Martin Gilbert's book on the history of Israel. Started reading it. And so my, my, my heart began to shift as I was there. And we, we did the normal tour. We, we landed. Uh, we went up the coast. We went to the Galilee area, back down to the Dead Sea, and then arrived back in Jerusalem about halfway through our, our trip. And that night, before we were going to go to the Yad Vashem the next morning, I had a dream, and it was about the Tehran children, which my first book is about. I knew a little bit about the Tehran children from just a paragraph or two in a historical book I'd read about the Tehran conference with Roosevelt and Stalin and Churchill. I told my wife about it. She said, well, you need to ask someone. So we were on the tour at the Yad Vashem, and our tour guide was just an excellent, it was a little French lady, a Holocaust survivor herself, and she told us about the, the, the French couple that took her in and taught her all the Catholic, you know, giving the signs and all the Catholic things. So they disguised her as a, a Catholic instead of a Jewish child, and she, that's the reason she survived the war. Uh, and she was very passionate about that story. So when she finished, I asked her, I said, do you have anything on the Tehran children? And she became excited. She said, what do you know about Tehran children? You know, an American tourist should not know about the Tehran children. Uh, it, it's a story not very well known outside of Israel. And I told her, I said, I know a little bit about it, but I feel like I would really like to write a book. I've always wanted to write history books and I've never gotten started. If I could find one, I would do it. So she gave me the name of a lady in Israel that uh, teaches school. When I got back to America, later on in the week, I sent her an email. And that's how I was introduced to Joe Rosenbaum that the first book is about. But I began to, when I began to study and research for Joe's book, the first one kept coming across Henrietta Zoll. So I said, she sounded like a very interesting person. Um, that's how I have my two protagonists in my two books. Came back, we went back to Israel in 2015. We did some more research there. So now I come back, at the, I come back in the summer of 2015 and I'm in. I have a heart for Israel that I still have to this day, never knowing that that was going to change my life as much as it did. So in the next eight years, I wrote the two books. Um, and, and that brings you to today. I have a heart for Israel, and I, I talk about it all that I can do. I do book events, and I talk about, uh, about Israel 
the state of Israel, bless Israel, things that uh, people in my part of the country is a, a little country church in, uh, in, in outside of North Louisiana don't know a lot about, but I have been fortunate in there have been a lot of people supporting me with this book in my hometown and in other areas. That kind of brings you up to date to, I guess, today, but uh, it's been an interesting turn since I retired. You know, or sometimes your life takes a turn that you never even thought about when that, when that next journey begins, how it begins. That was never on my mind. I never wrote down that that I was going to write two books on the Holocaust. I was going to write about the Second World War, maybe a biography of a Southern writer or something. So strange turn of events. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does this book convey? I think Henrietta Zoe, first of all, to me, Henrietta Zoe was an amazing person. Um, I lived with her. You know, when you're writing a book about someone, it, it's almost like family. You know, I, I lived with her every day for almost four years, not counting some of the research I did earlier than that. But in the main writing of the book, it was two and a half to three and a half years of writing off and on. And it's almost like she was family. I was used to live. I miss her. I'm through with the book and I miss Henrietta Zoe because I don't get to write about her every day. It impressed me about her was her dedication, dedication to Palestine into things that she called a higher to a higher power. She felt like she had a purpose uh, in this. She had a strong dedication. She had a strong background uh, because her father was a rabbi in Baltimore, Maryland. And so if you ask me themes of this, I would say a dedication to a cause that you feel like is from the heart. And also she, she had some very tough points in her life she had to work through to get to that. And it was perseverance. Henry Ozell to me is perseverance and dedication. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? I think simply this, that Henry Ozell, I think in 2023, the days that we live in now, I think Henry Ozell would be an excellent role model for young people today. And maybe not limited to young people, but to read about her and get an example of how um, she dedicated her life. I think she'd be an excellent role model that we need, in my opinion, that we need so badly today. What is your book's contribution to the history of the Holocaust? Well, one thing that I found as I began to do research and begin to do the initial writing was some, I have great books here in my office, great books written by some very fine historians. But I found and I didn't know why that youth Aliyah, which was the part of the Jewish agency that rescued children out of Europe, Adassa to a point in Henrietta Zoe, were not in the history books like I thought they would be. I have several major books on the Holocaust, and Henrietta Zoe is not even in the index. So to be able to tell a story that was mainly known in Israel and not outside of into the rest of the world, and for Henrietta Zoe to be a character that's brought out and developed and being read across the United States now with these books. I think my contribution is that you, you take someone that's hidden. I, I say this, that some great characters are hidden on the bookcase, bookshelves of history, or they somehow they've gotten lost in history. 
And Henrietta is too big of a player, too great of a person that we can follow. We're not bring, without bringing her off of that, that bookshelf and exposing her to readers and people that want to read about, about the Second World War and read about the Holocaust and the rescue of children. Can you tell us about Dorothy Kahn? What's notable about her and her writing? Who was she? Oh, Dorothy Kahn is, um, you know, when you write books like this on history, you want to find books that make the book come alive. I was very fortunate, and I found, along with Henrietta Zoe's letters, I found two women journalists that were in Palestine in the 1930s. Dorothy actually got there in the 30s. Another writer, Barbara Board, was in the 20s and 30s. There you get with a journalist keeping a diary. And the, 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 she wrote for the Palestine Post, which is now the Jerusalem Post. She was sent over to report on the, on the Arab-Israeli situation that was developing in Palestine. She gave us such color and vivid detail in her diaries and her writing that I, hopefully what I did was I was able to insert that into the book and, and make it more vivid, more alive with someone that was there. We, we see Palestine through Dorothy's eyes in her writing. She and um, Henrietta were very close friends. Henrietta sponsored her when she came to Palestine. Henrietta took her and introduced her some, to some people to get her career going. Um, Henrietta ended up being the godmother to her son. So they were very close friends. Dorothy's importance in this book is she gives us personal detail on what type of person Henrietta was, someone close to Henrietta. And also she gives us a closeness on what Palestine was like on the streets. She describes an Arab coffee maker on the streets of Jerusalem. It's just a, a wonderful scene that she wrote in her diary and then later put it into a newspaper article. Who was Marion Greenberg? Why is she notable? Marion Greenberg was, a, 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 I take her as an encourager to Henrietta Zoe. Ms. Greenberg was Hadassah's first national youth aliyah chairman and from 1936 to 1941, which were very important years for that. And she worked closely with Zoe. And then she would later write a book, and I think it was published in the 80s, There is Hope for Your Children. And it was about what Henrietta accomplished. Mary Greenberg was a close friend. She did, I, I don't think she lived in Palestine continually. She would make trips over. But she was an encourager to Henrietta at times when Henrietta, Henrietta suffered from homesickness. She, she missed America greatly. She, want, she always wanted to go back to America and retire. And of course, she never did. Something always drew her back to Palestine. And she, a lady like that, she needs an encourager. And Ms. Greenberg was probably her best encourager. Can you tell us about Recha Fryer? Why is she significant? Who is she? Well, actually, she is the founder of Youth Aliyah. And again, Youth Aliyah was at department in 1932 at the Jewish agency. And everyone knew that they had to have to get the Jewish children out of Europe. At some point, the war was going to begin, and once the war started, the gates would be closed. And, of course, we know that happened, September of 1939. The avenues of escape became very narrow for the children in Europe trying to get out. They did continue to get some children out of Austria 
and get children over to um, to England. Risha Fryer was a, a unique person. She was the daughter of a rabbi in Berlin. Uh, she was a um, an author, a poet. She wrote children's books. Um, but more importantly, she was a visionary. And what happened was in February of 1932, a group of Jewish children visited her apartment in Berlin, and they said they could no longer get jobs because they were Jewish. That one little experience convinced her that she should in some way start a program to get the Jewish children out. And of course, it later became Youth Aliyah. She went to work on it. She found a lot of resistance. Uh, it would take a lot of money. It would take organization and so on. But by October of 1932, the first group of Youth Aliyah children left Berlin and arrived several weeks later in Palestine. Where Risha comes into this is she was the visionary. She actually began it. But the Jewish leaders like Ben-Gurion knew that she was a visionary, but they needed someone that could make it happen. And Henrietta Zoll had been in Palestine since 1920. This is 1932-33. They knew the organizational ability that Henrietta had to make things happen. And it's like David Ben-Gurion told her when she at first refused to take the position that if not you, then who would do this? And that one comment convinced Tina Edder to take a close look. She didn't think there was there was the monies or the organization to make this happen. But in the end, she she took on the responsibility. Risha Fryer and Henrietta were never good friends. Um, Henrietta thought Henrietta thought that uh, she had not really complimented Risha Fryer enough. And that she was the one that started. And so every time she gave a public speech about Youth Aliyah, she gave Risha Fryer the credit for being the one that began it. Risha Fryer stayed in Germany until the late 30s, almost stayed too late, barely got out through uh, Vienna uh, into, and she came and spent the rest of her life in Palestine. Um, they just, and then she thought she was going to go to work for Youth Aliyah, but Henrietta didn't have a place for her. Uh, Henrietta was a very calculated person on the organization, and uh, you had to have something to contribute. And even though Risha Fryer had been the beginning of Youth Aliyah, Henrietta didn't think there was really anything for her to contribute that late in, 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 the, in the age of uh, Youth Aliyah. Can you tell us about Jesse Samter and her relationship with Henrietta Zold? How did they meet? How did they get along with each other? Jesse Samter... It, I, I know I'm I know I'm saying this a lot of times, but Jesse Samter is another amazing character to read about. She was in America. She and Henrietta knew each other in America. Uh, Samter was a Zionist educator and a pioneer. She at one time headed the Adassa School of Zionism. She spent a lot of time in Henrietta Zoll's home in New York, and you just can imagine the conversations they had. These two great ladies thought on Zionism and, and the approaching uh, conflict that would change Palestine forever. She learned much from the Europe. She, she writes about learning so much from the European Jews that were coming to America from a lot of Russia. Uh, she helped Henrietta Zoll in a school she started for the, for the Russian Jews and uh, to educate them, first of all, to speak English, 
understand history and so on. So they were close friends. She actually moved to Palestine in 1919. This was a year before Henrietta moved there. But when Henrietta moved there, she convinced Jesse to become like a uh, a writer for the Zionist movement and for Hadassah and Youth Aliyah. So she wrote pamphlets, she wrote educational books and so on. Uh, Samter was another visionary because there's parts of her book or her biography that were written, that was written by an, uh, a lady called, I think White Fire is the biography of Jesse Samter. That she envisioned that Zoll's involvement in Youth Aliyah was going to be a lot bigger than even Henrietta could picture, that it was important to be involved, and it was a time against the unparalleled tragedy of the German Jews as they were being as they suffered in Europe even by that time. And she honestly believed that Palestine would be the haven that the Jewish people would need to ever be safe. Now Samter always suffered with some health issues and she passed away in 1938 and Henrietta presided over her funeral that time. They were close friends and I think her visionary efforts toward Henrietta helped Henrietta to maybe understand a little more what she was accomplishing. Can you comment on your research process? How did you find the sources that you worked with in this book project? What kinds of sources did you use? Were there any specific difficulties that you encountered? Were there sources that were hard to find? Well, one thing I faced with Henrietta is a lot of old books, because you know you can buy books off of Amazon or Abe's books. The, the process is there, but a lot of books were in Hebrew, Ori. So I had to find books that were in English, obviously. Um, there's two. Once I picked up that Henrietta was a vital part of the first book, and I knew she was going to be my second book, I really ramped up my research, started buying books. There were two, uh, two biographies written of her in the 40s and in the early 70s. And one is A Woman of Valor by Irving Feynman. And then Joan Dash wrote Summoned to Jerusalem. I think it was in the 70s. They're two excellent books that gave me my background on Henrietta. And then where I really struck gold was I found a book that was in the 40s called Henrietta Zoe Life and Letters by Marvin Lowenthal. It was a collection of her letters. That's what really pushed me into um, it's what really pushed me into the way that I re, re, reorganized the book. I organized it around her letters. She was an excellent writer. She wrote beautiful letters. She could have been, as many of her friends said, she could have been a great literary writer. She had that capability, and you can see it in her letters that she wrote. So now I've got the basis for Henrietta with this, this basic information. And along the way, I collected probably no the 15 or 20 books that had Henrietta in there. Uh, then I was looking for, as I mentioned a while ago, when we were talking about Dorothy Kahn, I had to have something that brought Palestine to life. Um, and it was mainly through those two journalists, Dorothy Kahn, as we talked about briefly a while ago, and, a, and an English writer named uh, Barbara Board, who was sent in the 30s. And she wrote a book called News Girl in Palestine, and it was in the 1930s. She interviewed Henrietta Zoll about the Hadassah organization in her book. 
when I found that, I mean, that's how fortunate you are sometimes when you research for a book. It's like a treasure chest and you just all of a sudden you find something that means a lot. And her her column that she wrote about interviewing Henrietta Zell gave me a lot of insight into that. Risha Fryer, who we talked about briefly, also wrote her own book, Let the Children Come. Um, and that added a lot of detail to it. So I just kept adding layer and layer of, of, of information. A lot of books are written on Hadassah at that time. Um, a lot of books written on Hadassah. There's several books that were written on Youth Aliyah. I didn't have any problem finding research in English. I thought I would at first, but just probably I have in my office here over 100 books that I use for research on on Henrietta's um, on Henrietta's biography. Gave me a lot of vivid detail to put in the book, her letters and the journalists and people who knew her. David Ben-Gurion's books have something about her. I've got five or six biographies on Ben-Gurion. Henrietta is discussed at length in some of those books. Then you do the research and you're just really happy. You got all this information and then you realize I've got to take all this information and make it into a 350-page book that people want to read. So then the real work started. Research was a lot of fun on Henrietta. And it was fun writing the book, but it was also one of the hardest things I did. Who was Tsipora Shertok? How did she respond to the Tehran children? What was her relationship like with Henrietta Zold? How did they cooperate together? Shertok was a personal representative for Zold, and she worked in the Jerusalem office of Youth Aliyah. And they were close friends. They had been friends since Henrietta had come to Palestine in the 1920s. And by that time, the Tehran children are stranded in Iran and they can't get out. A lot of politics of war going on there. The Americans had an airlift planned for them and then they canceled it. The British had trains set up for them to go overland uh, and then that was canceled. And then in fact, Hadassah representatives in Washington convinced the British ambassador Halifax to get the children out. So they got from Caspian Sea to Tehran a little earlier than that. And they began to get word, began to leak out into the Jerusalem office about a group of Jewish children stranded in Tehran. And Henrietta sent Zipporah there. They were friends. She knew she could depend on getting the exact information she needed with Zipporah going. In October of 1942, she and two other ladies made the trip to Tehran. They went in and inspected camps, Jewish children. Jewish children were being treated a lot different than the, than the Polish children. Polish children were in an abandoned Air Force base, and they were being treated very well. The Jewish children were isolated. There was not enough food. There was not enough water. And the medical uh, provisions were just very limited. Matter of fact, at one point, the hospital in the Jewish camp was a tent, not a building. So Zipporah walks in on this situation, and she walks around and she talks with people, and she talks with people, the adults that had made the trip from the Caspian Sea area into Tehran. And she sat down that night, the first night, I believe, that she was there. She went back to her hotel room, and she wrote a letter 
a telegram to Henrietta Zoll, sent it to the Jerusalem office. And basically what it said is if we don't get them out soon, none of them will survive. This is a desperate situation. And Henrietta, knowing Zipporah, knowing she trusted her, she believed what he, the information she sent. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Why is Henrietta Zold's memory, legacy, reputation, and biography relevant in the year 2023? Well, I'll, I'll go back to another question that you asked just a moment ago. I think it would be, um, she would be an excellent role model for today. Just like we were just talking about, she never gave up. She had roadblocks on getting the Tehran children out, the American government, the British government. Uh, the Iranian government. She just refused to say no. When she had a purpose that she wanted to accomplish, she just refused to say no and kept moving straight ahead until the Tehran children were on the way back. And she took everything personally. She did not leave, delegate authority or delegate responsibility on this. She was updated as the Tehran children were being moved around India into uh, ships around to Egypt and finally to Palestine. She was updated almost daily. As soon as she could get an update, she wanted to know. And when the Tehran children finally arrived in Palestine, she was there to greet them. Now this is, she could have sent someone else, but now she's in her eighties and her, her health is beginning to fail, but she still worked 15 hour days. She still rode the train over to the athlete detention camp, and she personally met everyone. And I think there's a lot to learn about the way she ran everything. She took personal responsibility for things that she had a heart for and that she wanted to see work. It would be a great, I believe, today, be a great, she'd be just a great character reference for anyone who wanted to read her and be like her. How is your study of Henrietta Zold different from previous biographies of her? Where do you innovate vis-a-vis other portrayals of her? Uh, I, I started out, after I finished Joe's book, I took a little time, and then I outlined, actually outlined what's called a basic cradle-to-grave biography. And that's the way a lot of biographies of famous people are written. 
Uh, you know, you start at birth when they die and you fill in in between. Um, I never was able to really get that going. And I had worked with a literary agent about the book, about a full biography. And then she informed me that the lady that had written the biography on Gold to My Ear, Linus, that lady was a noted writer in Israel. And there had been, she had negotiated a book deal for it. So that kind of left me out. You know, here's a, a new guy on the block. I've got one book published. And then this um, the lady that did the, the Linus was a well-known historian. So I thought, I, I can't go, I can't walk away from this project. So what I did was I changed it from a cradle to grave. I changed it to a slice of history, which is sometimes called that. What part of what part of Henrietta's life would have been the most important if you weren't writing a full biography? Well, she often referred to Youth Aliyah and the rescue of the children out of Europe in the 30s was the greatest thing that the Jewish people had done, and it was the greatest thing she had done. She felt very personal about that. So that's when I began to turn my research and outlining the 1933 to 1945. Um, in the end, I think we, in the end, I think we made the right decision. Uh, people will have to read and make their own decision on that. But I really believe when I finished organizing and writing, we caught Henrietta at her zenith. We caught her at the point where she considered the greatest work she'd ever done. Her health, besides her health failing. She was so dedicated, she never gave up. Even when she's in the hospital at the end of her days, some of her secretaries were slipping work in for her to do beyond the orders of the doctors were, of course, not to. But I think we caught her just at the right time because that was part of her life that um, she was probably the proudest of. And all the great things that she's done that she could have listed, that was the one thing she listed. Who was Emma Ehrlich? Why is she notable? What was her relationship like with Sold? Emma was uh, another notable character. She was a secretary of Henrietta Zoll. She was an American that had come to uh, uh, to Berlin. And at that time, by 1935, Youth Aliyah was just growing. The office, they moved into new offices. They needed new staff. Their job just overwhelmed them. They were being very successful in getting children out of Europe. So Henrietta added more staff. She immediately liked Emma Ehrlich. Emma was an American. She was dark haired. She was a she was beautiful, according to the, the descriptions. And she and Henrietta hit it off. Henrietta had a way of really liking some people the moment she met them. And she liked Emma very much. Um, <laughs> Emma was also the one that kept Henrietta in line as a secretary. And because Henrietta would get, she would get fiery in meetings. If things weren't going, if things weren't being accomplished and things were not going well, Henrietta could really get on people and re really show herself a little bit. And there's one scene in the story where she goes in and she just drills everyone about not getting this certain project done. And Emma leans down and says, now Henrietta, we're going to get through doing this, and then we're going to be nice again. So that was that explains Emma Ehrlich's uh, relationship with Emma. She was someone who could keep Henrietta under control, and Emma stayed with her. She was with her at the very last when she passed away in February of 1945. 
Emma was there, and Emma stayed on with youth Aliyah after Henrietta's death. Who was Hans Veit? Can you tell us about his relationship with Sold? Why is he noteworthy? Well, Hans was another one that was brought in. He was a German banker, uh, came in as youth Aliyah began to grow, probably a little bit after Emma Ehrlich and the other secretaries were hired. Hans came in. It was another person that Henrietta connected with immediately. I think it was, you know, this was an organization full of women and they were accomplishing everything. They were doing great jobs. But here comes this nice looking uh, German Jewish guy with his with his suits and everything. I think Henrietta liked having a man around. That's just my opinion from the letters I that I read and put in the book. She liked Hans a, a lot. And I think she liked having that male companionship because as the as more children came to Palestine, they were placed in camps and the butts and other areas around the countryside. She would make tours and personally inspect what was going on there. She left nothing to chance. She did it herself. Well, Hans became her escort and her driver and so on. And they spent a lot of time on the road. He took care of her as he began to see her health fail and she didn't walk down the, the you know the dirt roads without a lot of help from him. And she, he, he began to see her really age and all of her work was really beginning to tell on her. I think Hans really loved her. I think everyone close to Henrietta had a special affection for her because she was tough, but she was also a very, she was a kind hearted person. Um, when Henrietta died, Hans Beth stayed on in the youth organization and on a trip that he made doing inspections, uh, he got in a gunfight with some people that were ambushed him on the road and he got his pistol out and was defending the car and he was shot and was killed there in Palestine not long after Henrietta's death. On page 143, you allude to Adolf Hitler's plans to expand the Holocaust into Palestine, intending to liberate Palestine from the British. Can you expand on this? Can you elaborate on the place of Palestine in Hitler's grand strategy and Middle East policy? Something, anytime someone writes a book, we learn things we didn't know, Ari. This was something I had no, even in all of my World War II research I had done over the years since college, I did not know this. But I saw it mentioned in a David Ben-Gurion biography that if Rommel had won North Africa and moved into Egypt. Ben-Gurion had a plan to make Mount Carmel a modern-day Masada. That this, they, would, they would do their last, the, Jew, the Jewish army, the Haganah, would make their last stand right there at Mount Carmel. That, that, that fact amazed me. It, it, it skipped um, a lot of books I had read. So I dug out a book called The Plans for the Extermination of the Jews in Palestine by Martin Coopers, and I began to study that. And there was indeed a plan that Rommel, at that time, Rommel was winning in North Africa. And if he had gone into Egypt, there were plans on paper drawn to create camps very similar to the camps in Europe in the Palestine territory. Uh, even more, even to the point where in 1937, Adolf Eichmann, along with his boss, Herbert Hagen, had traveled to the Middle East to do research on setting up these camps and how much 
the Arabs would supported them. And there was a lot of support for the Nazis in the Arab countries. Lebanon was a, was a, was a hotbed of Nazi support. Uh, in the end, of course, it didn't work. They, they even went, Eichmann went back with his doubts on whether he would have had the support to do it. But then more importantly, Rommel didn't win the Battle of El Alamein. And that the threat to Palestine at that point was over. So there were plans to make, if, if Rommel had been successful, Palestine could have very well become another scene like Poland in the 1940s. Amazing fact, amazing fact that just totally skipped me for years. I didn't know that. What transpired during Henrietta Zold's visit to Berlin in 1933? How did she perceive Adolf Hitler? Well, she actually made three trips, 1933, 35, and 37. So you can imagine the progression of what she saw really affected her. Her first trip, as you say, was in 1933. She had read some of Adolf Hitler's book, I believe, and she knew exactly where he was going with this. Dangerous times were ahead. And she realized that when, even when she was in America, before she came back in 1932, there are letters that she wrote to her sisters that Hitler had brought her back to Palestine. So it wasn't unusual that you knew that she was eventually going to go to Berlin as soon as she could with this going on. And when she arrived back, now you have to understand, she's of German descent. She's got ancestors that, uh, she has kin people that were of German descent. She loved Berlin. Berlin in the 30s, as most readers will know, was a cultural center of Europe. Plays and uh, and literature and so on, music especially. But it changed so quickly that when 1933, she went into a hotel and um, music was playing over the loudspeaker in the hotel and everybody was so polite and so businesslike, things that she was used to in the old Germany. I think it was Mozart music playing in the, ho in the hotel lobby. Hitler... The music stopped and Hitler began to make a speech and she saw the transformation of the Ger German people, the waiters and the bellhops and the desk clerks from the music where they were just the Germans she had known to these people. And she said, she wrote in her a letter that she wrote after being traveling to, to Berlin, that she saw the tightness of their faces and the long unblinking stare of worshiping eyes. And then that was the moment that Henrietta realized for sure what Hitler was capable of, to see a transformation of a, of a cultural great people transformed just from listening to music to hear this man speak over the radio. And then, of course, later in the uh, streets, uh, she noticed the, uh, the posters that were plastered everywhere announcing that uh, this hatred message that he had, the Jews of the world want to destroy Germany, German people resist, that particular poster was all over businesses and walls and on street signs and so on. That's those two incidences without a doubt told her in 1933 where this was going. Then in 1937, of course, things became a lot worse. She went to the youth alley office in 1935 and she, they could not conduct the meeting because uh, the brown shirts were singing and their, their Nazi songs and marching up and down in front of the building. They could hardly get their meeting. When she went in 1937, 
that's when she wrote in her letter that the Germans, a lot of the older Germans knew they were never going to get out. But the message she heard time after time in 1937 was just save the children. So in that, from 33 to 35 to 37, she saw the complete transformation of German civilization and how it had changed. And it, it always amazed her that she, that German people allowed that to happen to themselves. How did the issue respond to the Battle of El Alamein? What did Sold have to say about it? She actually writes, she actually writes about that in some of her letters to her sisters. And as I alluded a while ago when we were talking about the, uh, the, the plan to have a Holocaust situation set up in Palestine. Until, until the Battle of El Alamein, when the British Eighth Army defeated Rommel, there was a lot of concern and a lot of preparation for a final stand in Palestine. Ben-Gurion was very serious about it. And again, I mentioned the, the Mount Carmel masada type fortress that he was going to build and that was going to be the last stand there were going to be several places like that there were talks about getting people out of palestine if they could up up northward out of palestine but once el alamein uh, was a, a british victory henrietta even wrote to her sisters in america that she felt like the threat to palestine as a land and was now greatly diminished because Rommel was defeated. Her her uh, nephew, she was a pacifist, but with the the threat that Rommel presented in in the desert of North Africa, it, it dwelled on her mind, and her uh, nephew, Benjamin, joined the American Army in Palestine. He became a recruit in the American Army. She was a pacifist. But she also realized that there was going to have to be the, the freedom was going to have to be one with with armies and with with guns. And that that threat that even though it went away, it dwelled on her that we're, we're fighting something very important here to survive. Can you comment on the circumstances surrounding the death of Henrietta Zold? How did she die? How was she memorialized? To the extent of your knowledge, can you describe her funeral? She passed away at 7.40 p.m. on February the 13th, 1945, in the Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus that, of course, she helped build. She had been sick for several months, and she was still trying to do some work. We were trying to keep work away from her. Emma, Ehrlich, Hines, Beth, we were trying to really guard her, but she insisted on at least knowing some things that were going on. But that night she passed away, and she did. She passed away very quietly. Uh, Judah Magnes was there. He was the president of the Hebrew University. They were great friends, and he describes how she passed away very quietly in her sleep. Uh, she was surrounded by those that worked for her and her close friends. At dawn, the nurses prepared her body. Uh, she re- it was wrapped in a, a shroud she had prepared, and then placed for viewing on a wooden bier in the hallway of Adassa Nursing School. And she was covered with a curtain of the sacred Torah Ark and eight candles at her head. The reason I quote that out of the book is I tried to write that scene in, a, in the most respectful way that you can from people who were there and gave the details. And then the crowds began to come through with whispering prayers and reading Psalms. Henrietta was, was a, a, had hero status in Palestine at that time. 
there was even, uh, they joked with her that some of the soldiers had her pictures up that she was the pinup girl for the uh, Haganah army. And she found that hard to believe, but that was true. She was had hero status in Palestine, even in her 80s. Uh, Risha Fryer, again, who started Youth Aliyah in Berlin, and Henrietta were longtime adversaries. They were never close friends. But there's one passage in the book that uh, I wrote out of a witness that that afternoon, after the crowds had been coming through all day to view the body, Risha Fryer stood in a cornered, shadowed corner of the room and she watched over the body for hours until daylight the next day so even though they were adversaries it was obvious that Richard Fryer had a lot of respect the next day when she was buried was cold and and a chilled wind was blowing across and Henrietta was buried on the, the Mount of Olives um, which she looked over from her hotel room earlier when she came to Palestine in the 20s. And she looked over the Mount of Olives and she was very homesick. Now that was where she was buried, right there on the Mount of Olives. Now on her tombstone was written of all the great things that could, an epitaph that could be written of Henrietta Zoe. She gave specific instructions that the only thing written was here lies Henrietta Zoe, daughter of Rabbi Benjamin. She always considered her the daughter of her father. That was how her life ended. There was no, uh, there was no uh, big ceremony, everything per her uh, instructions. But later on, there was a memorial service where some of the Zionist leaders spoke, and one of the Youth Aliyah children spoke to Kadesh over her body <laughs> years later. Can you tell us about Henrietta Zolt's childhood? What have you learned about her childhood? that readers and listeners would benefit from knowing? I think that's the one thing that using a slice of history biography instead of a full biography, I would have loved to have written at length about her childhood. She had such a beautiful childhood. She was raised in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, her father was a rabbi. He was a he was studious, studious person. He read a lot. He wrote a lot. He had a, an office full of books. And um, at five years old, he made her a little desk so she could sit at her desk while he was sitting at his desk. Matter of fact, there's an opening in the book uh, that where she, she wrote her first letter when she was five years old, sitting at that desk in her father's library. He had gone on a business trip, and she wrote a letter that said, Father, I just want you to know everything is going fine here. She wrote her first letter when she was five years old. She wrote her last letter in the hospital in 1945 in the Hadassah Hospital, and she wrote thousands of letters in between that. Her mother was, she came from a very warm childhood. She had sisters that she loved. They had one sister that passed away when she was young. It was a very traumatic experience for Henrietta. But when she went out into the world, she was totally prepared from a literary standpoint, from uh, understanding life that her, her father and her mother taught her. It was a childhood that she looked back on many times, and she always was homesick for America, and she always planned on, and she was pursued by her sisters to retire from Palestine in her 70s and come to America and retire and live on her sister's farm in Connecticut. And of course, she never gave up that dedication. 
when she left, she went to work for the Jewish Publication Society, which was a great job for her. That's when she moved out into the world. But you'll read some of her childhood biography in my book, as much as I could put in, and that she read a lot. She had a tree under the garden in the back. That was her favorite place to read. She just loved a childhood that she just adored and she loved to remember. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Well, we, I took some, took some time off um, for a while and did some reading, but I've got uh, a story on the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the Israeli War of Independence, which would be a, a great story. It's outlined. I've got some pages written. Most of the research is done, Ari. Um, at some point, I think that'll be my next project. It's very close to me. Um, so that's, that's going to be a very, that's going to, you can't just write a military book on the 1948 war, as everyone knows. You can write a military book, but you're going to be dealing with a lot of other aspects that were going on in 1948 in Palestine. Uh, it's, it, it's, I don't see how you can just do a military book without covering all the fringe events that are going on around Israel becoming a nation. But that's my plans. I wish you the very best with that project. It will be an, an immense contribution and a genuine gift to your readers, especially in the Israel studies community, but also beyond that. It's such a important project, and I really look forward to you seeing that project to in, to fruition, to fulfillment, and to completion. Thank you. Or thank you for the encouragement, and thank you for your time on having me here to talk about Henrietta. You certainly deserve it, and I applaud you on your noble work. I feel blessed to have spoken to you today and feel absolutely grateful that this wonderful research on Henrietta Tussauld exists for the benefit of everybody due to your sacrifices and due to your investment of time and resources. Thank you. Thank you very much. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Randy Grigsby, author of many writings on Jewish subjects, specifically the Holocaust and the 1948 Israeli War of Independence. Today, we've been discussing his new book, This Labyrinth of Darkness and Light, Henrietta Sold, The Rescue of Children from Hitler's Europe, and Her Palestine Experience, published in London by Valentine Mitchell, 2022. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.